Tina Martini and Rich Linkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Welcome into Legal Face Off on WGN and WGNRadio.com. We are still Zoom bound. The legal eagles are here. And I wonder what we're going to talk about to lead off the show. Rich slow, slow news day, Sam. Yes. And Tina Martini, you're here. Ben Anderson, Emily, Gabby, everybody at BDL for uh, making this thing move per usual. We'll talk about election lawsuits, the election, of course, the SCOTUS foster care case, and the Illinois Fair Tax Amendment. So plenty to get to, and let's not waste any time. Alex Vogel is a partner at Holtzman, Vogel, Josefiak, and Torchinsky, and he joins us now on Legal Faceoff to talk about the madness involving the election lawsuits. Alex, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Alex, you're also, of course, well-versed in this area, having worked on uh, many other recounts, especially one our, our viewers may have heard of, uh, I don't know, Bush versus Gore in 2000. So uh, obviously well-versed in this area. So we're looking at three main challenges by Trump's lawyers, right? We're talking about recounts, uh, operational challenges like lack of observers or observers being too far away, um, structural arguments like should ballots be counted that arrived after deadlines. Which of these three or which, you know, of the three, what do you think will be more successful? Do you think they're all, they all stand a good chance? Bring our listeners up to speed on, on these strategies. So a couple of things. Some of the recounts aren't even discretionary. Uh, if you fall within the threshold of the state, um, you're going to have a recount. Um, I, I would say, um, while not impossible, um, uh, the margins that we're looking at in most of these states, even uh, places like Wisconsin, that you know, it is a small number of votes out of the whole. Um, those are large numbers to see turned in a recount. Um, again, a recount's not looking for malfeasance. It's simply, uh, as the name implies, recounting. Uh, the ballot. So don't expect a giant change there. Uh, a couple of hundred is within the realm of reasonable. Uh, on the other two pieces, um, the uh, the structural uh, challenges about things like change deadlines for counting ballots uh, seem the most likely both to have an impact uh, and uh, and potentially at least of a scale that could be relevant here. Um, all of the other stuff around observers, um, A, the facts are muddled to say the least uh, in terms of the, the status of observers. Uh, but even if a court was to find at this point in the process uh, that there was imperfect execution of a, a given jurisdiction's uh, implementation, uh, unless there's some other strong indicia of malfeasance, it's just an incredibly unlikely remedy for a court to decide to knock the, the innocent voters, if you will, out of the process uh, because of that. Now, the last piece, the structural challenges like we've had in Pennsylvania over ballot counting, that at least has the potential uh, to affect a, a, you know, a, a larger, I will say, uh, number of ballots. Not clear it's as large as the, uh, the amount needed to be material to the outcome, uh, but certainly does present opportunities uh, for the Trump campaign. The challenge here and the, the difficulty in evaluating their likelihood of success is we don't normally have these types of changes this close to an election. We've had more changes in American election law in the last three months than we probably had in five years. Uh, so no one really knows uh, outside of some anecdotal information how courts are likely to review that. Again, I, there's, a, there's a fairly clean way for a court to look at this uh, on constitutional grounds in terms of what the state legislature did and who had the power to do so and whether that was uh, changed later on inappropriately. Again, the remedy is a challenge because you're effectively telling a whole bunch of innocent voters that their votes aren't going to count in this process, um, even if they got them in by the deadline because of when they were delivered by the Postal Service. Really tough spot for, for any court to find itself in. Alex, really quickly, sorry, I'm gonna. I just have one follow up on that. How much, um, uh, how much stock do you put in the fact that Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito, who presides over uh, this district, uh, already ruled that those ballots that came in after election day or the close of business on on election day should be segregated? Do you think that's a preview as to how he would be thinking about this issue? Uh, no, I think it's a preview that he's willing to at least look at this issue. Uh, and that they, you know, obviously, uh, if if they don't segregate them, very hard to do so after the fact. So I, I think that was just a, a preliminary decision that at least holds open that possibility. I don't read a whole lot from a substantive perspective into that yet. 
So, Alex, yesterday, Attorney General Bill Barr told federal prosecutors that they were allowed to investigate specific allegations of voter fraud before the results of the presidential race are certified. This prompted the Justice Department official who oversees investigations of voter fraud to step down from the post within hours. Doesn't Barr's directive ignore the Justice Department's longstanding policies intended to keep law enforcement from affecting the outcome of an election? It certainly uh, rubs right in there. Uh, there's no doubt that both courts as well as uh, prosecutorial and investigatory entities like DOJ um, have worked hard to separate themselves from what they view uh, as, as political disputes. One of the challenges is we have election laws, uh, not just the most of the state ones we're talking about, but civil rights laws, um, uh, which, which undergird a lot of those elections. And one of the challenges is if you have allegations of fraud, if people are coming forward saying, we want you to look at this and here is our evidence, while we haven't seen that evidence other than what's been talked about on social media, which doesn't get them very far, um, I, at some point, um, we have an elections crime unit, a public integrity unit, to look at situations like that and a civil rights unit at justice, and they also have to do their job. So I think it's a very fine line. Uh, I actually didn't feel the attorney general was particularly aggressive in terms of the statement. He simply said, you can look at this. He didn't say you must uh, you know, convene some special uh, star chamber to overturn the will of the people. Um, uh, so I, I think there was probably a lot of behind the scenes we're not privy to uh, in terms that led to that resignation. Alex, you know, we all saw this eruption on Saturday, uh, certainly in Chicago, certainly in my neighborhood and in neighborhoods and cities all across the country, indeed, you know, all across the world of, you know, people out on the streets celebrating. There were certainly demonstrations in favor of Trump as well. Um, Tina's a great lawyer. I'm a litigator. You know, I appear before judges all the time. And we like to think that the law is this, you know, shining element on a hill that's that's in a vacuum and that judges, once they don the black robes, are going to only follow the law and be not cognizant of what's going on outside the courtroom. We know that's not true, however. My question to you is, how much do you think public opinion will enter the minds of these judges, even Supreme Court justices, once they're considering overturning what seems to be the will of the people. Certainly, Biden has the most votes in, in U.S. history, presidential history. Certainly, he won the popular vote. So how much do you think judges will let what they saw Saturday uh, and what they continue to see um, influence their decisions as they rule on these motions and challenges by the Trump legal team? I think about it this way. Certainly, uh, and this is true for lots of state uh, court level judges as well, but certainly all federal judges, uh, some more than others, depending on where they happen to be, uh, are used to dealing with highly consequential cases of a national interest. Um, there's probably not a bigger national interest right now as evidenced by that uh, uh, the public response to the election. I, I agree. They can't help but be aware of uh, and understand that dynamic. I think the larger piece at play here uh, that is actually likely to to push to urge caution on them is uh, that desire to not put courts in the place of the voters um, uh, on election issues. Um, people forget they think that somehow Bush v. Gore was some sort of omnibus. Uh, we just decided Bush won the election um, uh, decision. Uh, it wasn't. It was based around whether or not a specific set and not all ballots could be recounted. Um, so in that context, it was fairly narrow. If courts can be presented with um, uh, a fairly narrow question that they can answer, even if it has much larger political implications, I think they're willing to go there. Um, I think these uh, the theory behind some of the cases I've heard discussed is omnibus vote fraud uh, cases. Um, a, there's not really a, a, a court with jurisdiction in that regard because uh, these are all individual elections. But B, I think the courts are going to be very unwilling uh, to step into that. There's a prosecutorial angle that, that could certainly take place, but from a, a court decision piece, I think they'll work very hard uh, to avoid that, not only because of the uh, the public interest uh, and, and excitement around the issue, uh, but because they really don't want to place themselves uh, where the voters should rightfully be. 
So Alex, uh, as Rich mentioned, you were Bush Cheney counsel in the 2000 recount, and we've touched upon it a little bit. Um, how does this compare to um, what's going on now? And uh, I'm sure our listeners would love to hear what it was like working working on that recount. Uh, super interesting experience, obviously. Uh, fascinating to have my Thanksgiving in a, uh, a hotel ballroom in Florida unexpectedly. Um, the biggest, in one sense, it's similar in that, um, as we all remember, uh, a shocking amount of uh, intense public scrutiny around all of it. Um, in that case, it was really uh, limited to one state. Um, and so you had the entire, you know, national legal, political, media structure all uh, pushing in on that, which created a lot of pressure uh, on on all the participants in that process. The biggest difference that I don't think people fully get their arms around as it relates to the current situation is that was a recount. We had the count. And then there was a question over the recount and what would be recounted and how it would be done. Um, that was it. Um, and in this case, I know it's frustrating to people, but we are still in the count uh, part of that process. Uh, one of the things that I haven't really understood was a lot of the public discussion around from people who were concerned about vote fraud uh, and supporters of President Trump about stopping the count. Um, a very tough place to be when your argument is don't count the votes. Um, maybe segregate the votes, uh, fine, but, but the idea of not counting the votes, a very tough place to be and very different uh, place than where either side was in, uh, in the Florida context. Alex, last question, because, you know, your involvement in Bush versus Gore is obviously fascinating. And we'd like to take our listeners and viewers in, you know, inside the room, as we call it. So give us one anecdote from, uh, you know, the most pressure filled days of the 2000 recount or maybe where you were when you heard the Supreme Court tell Florida stop counting. Give us give us something that uh, would be an inside scoop for our listeners about your time on that campaign. It, it was a wild time. And one of the things. Uh, we were all up very late on election night, and when it became clear um, that you know what was happening, uh, people forget it was not just Florida. It was Nevada, um, let's see, Oregon and New Mexico were also very close. I was actually on a plane at four in the morning to Oregon. That was the first all male vote uh, in American history um, to figure that out. By two hours after I landed, it was clear that it was all about Florida. And uh, I went back to Washington and then to Florida. And when uh, this was back when Reagan Airport uh, pre 9-11 still had a private terminal and there were literally private planes ferrying teams of lawyers down to Florida. Uh, and when we showed up, the Nightline crew was in the little hangar um, trying to hitch a ride. Um, and so you literally had the entire press corps, all of the lawyers, Republicans and Democrats who were heading to Florida uh, at odd hours, were all sitting in the private jet terminal uh, with the media hopping on these planes with them uh, to go down there. Uh, it was like nothing I've ever seen. After uh, the Florida experience when we're working away down there and the, the court issues a stay. Uh, my now wife and I, um, she was also a lawyer working on it. So I got a wife out of the deal in addition to an election. Um, uh, we, uh, we were waiting and we went out to dinner one night uh, in Orlando at uh, the, the Disney uh, boardwalk place. And while we were there, my father and my now father-in-law called and said, hey, the court issued a decision. It's over. Um, we called back to the hotel to where all the campaign people were staying. Um, they were already drinking and had forgotten <laughs> to call us. Uh, so we raced back and there was a gentleman in the bar with a big hat on, big Texas-sized cowboy hat, belt buckle, buying drinks for everybody. I assumed he was someone associated with the campaign because of the Texas uh, getup. Uh, hours later, I found out he was just the Jerry Jones. He stumbled into this party and it seemed like fun. So he bought us all drinks. Wow. Nice. <laughs> did, w, did W come down at some point or was he not even there? Uh, he was. He did not come down and uh, see us in Florida. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah, no Twitter back then. You can't exactly scroll for the uh, results on the phone back in 2000. He is Alex Vogel, a partner at Holtzman, Vogel, Josefiak, and Torchinsky. Their website, hvjt.law. Alex, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, guys. 
Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Bryce Downey and Lenkoff. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like United Airlines, McDonald's, Macy's, Dollar Tree, and the Chicago Bears for his outstanding litigation results. In 2015, Target named him their top outside litigation attorney in the country. Rich has received a number of industry accolades, including Illinois Super Lawyer from 2015 through 2019 and Leading Lawyer from 2012 through 2020 designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, including serving on organizations like the Advisory Board of Legal Prep Charter Academy and the Board of Visitors for the Northern Illinois University College of Law. In addition to his full-time practice, Rich is a prolific producer with credits including Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel, 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and the coach, Mike Ditka. And Renegades, a live show in Las Vegas starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon. In addition to co-hosting Legal Face-Off since 2013, Rich is the legal analyst for The John Williams Show on WGN Radio. Bryce Downey and Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, business transactions, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Bryce Downey and Lenkoff, please visit BDLfirm.com. That's BDLfirm.com. We return to the guest line here on Legal Faceoff. Professor Paul Smith will join us now to talk about the SCOTUS foster care case. He's a professor from practice at Georgetown Law, also the vice president for litigation and strategy at the Campaign Legal Center. And he argued 21 cases before the Supreme Court and also clerked for Supreme Court Justice Powell. Professor, welcome back to Legal Faceoff. Glad to be here. So, Paul, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments last Wednesday in Fulton versus City of Pennsylvania. Of- city of Philadelphia, which is a case involving the foster care services provider and adoption agency, Catholic Social Services. This case arose after the city of Philadelphia learned in 2018 that CSS would not certify same-sex couples as suitable parents for children in the city's foster care system based on religious teachings about marriage. Can you bring our listeners up to speed on what the lower courts ruled in this case and how it got to the Supreme Court? Sure. Uh, the lower courts both ruled that the city, uh, which runs the foster care program and, and uses various agencies as his kind of agent to, to help in the, in the placement of children, but is fully within its rights to say that uh, one of its contractors, in this case, the Catholic Social Services, has to live by the same rules everybody else lives by, uh, and they can't uh, refuse to uh, do their assessments of, of uh, same-sex fam- uh, families, same-sex couples, uh, and say, well, we only work with opposite-sex couples. Let other agencies do these same-sex couples. They have the same obligation as everybody else to live by the anti-discrimination rules that Philadelphia sets for its own agents, its own contractors who will go out and do some of the work for, for the city in, in operating the foster care program. Paul, those of us who observe the court are still getting our heads around um, how the uh, current court is operating, how they're ruling, and especially how the three new justices, the most recent being Justice Barrett, um, are handling oral arguments and cases. What do we learn about these three new justices from the oral arguments in this case? Well, of course, there's only been the, <laughs> a handful of cases now that Justice Barrett's been on. Um, there was the ACA this morning, a couple yesterday, and this one. Uh, she seems, uh, she's obviously very bright. She seems to be very polite. She doesn't seem like a uh, one of the justices who's going to come on and try to make people look bad in the way that Justice Scalia would occasionally do. Uh, but, you know, she's she's joined the, the the right end of the conservative wing of the court, that's for sure. So we also know her views on LGBT rights and religion, which obviously came under a lot of scrutiny during the Senate confirmation process. Obviously, the court's leaning much more conservative now and against the backdrop of this new dynamic among the court, um, as well as the hotly contested election, which is going to obviously continue to simmer on for the days and weeks to come. How do you think all of these dynamics may impact the outcome of the case? Well, I think that her presence on the on the case makes it more likely that the court will find some way to rule for the Catholic Social Services Agency uh, that they should be able to con- keep their uh, relationship with the city, keep operating the foster care program, keep doing their screenings of 
potential foster parents while saying we don't we won't work with same sex couples. Uh, she is obviously very sympathetic, I think, to the 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 view that uh, conservative religious people have felt going back to Obergefell in 2015, that the imposition of same-sex marriage on them in their country is in some way victimizing uh, them, making them, ex uh, their, their religious views get uh, labeled as, as discriminatory or bigoted. And, and that's a, a view that uh, some of the justices expressed way back in 2015. And I'm quite confident she, she, believe, she agrees with them that, that that's an unfortunate outgrowth of of the Supreme Court decision. So where are we now is, uh, you know, same-sex marriage is not going away. Uh, Obergefell is not going to get overruled, but we're in the midst of a long, long process of trying to figure out exactly where to draw the line between that part of, of life where people have a right to discriminate based on their personal religious beliefs and those, those activities where the general rule of non-discrimination has to prevail. And, uh, Clearly, you know, in your home, in your church, in your social club, you can discriminate all you want. Uh, and in the general rule is in business, you can't. That that's when you enter into a business, you have to live by the rules, even if you're a religious employer or a religious store owner. Uh, but there is an effort underway to try to bring uh, religious exemptions into the business world. We saw that with the Masterpiece Cake Shop case. Uh, and we, we, there, there are other cases involving wedding providers, like there's a florist case out west. Uh, and this, this social services case is, is of a piece with those, all trying to find uh, ways in which to articulate the argument that even in their, their pursuing an occupation or performing a government function in this case, religious people ought to be able to claim the right to do it the way they want to and, and, and get an exemption from an anti-discrimination rule. Uh, and so, you know, I think that she will, Justice Barrett will, uh, as we go forward on that fight, and I think there's going to be many, many rounds in this boxing match before we get an answer, uh, she will be certainly very sympathetic to the claims for a need for exemption. One of, one of those justices, along with Justice Thomas, Justice Alito, and maybe the other two Trump appointees, Kavanaugh and Gorsuch, pretty sympathetic to the, the claim of religious conservatives that they should not have to uh, do business with LGBT people or serve, serve them or hire them if they don't want to. Professor, we'd be remiss if we didn't turn your attention quickly as one of the foremost appellate um, uh, litigation lawyers in the country, former Supreme Court clerk, as Sam mentioned, to the matter that's really getting everyone's attention today, uh, which is the Trump election lawsuits. We just discussed it with Alex Vogel. We'll be discussing it shortly in our grab bag section. But Quickly, what are your thoughts on it? Uh, there's so many different elements, of course, um, uh, but what are your general thoughts on whether Trump's attorneys will succeed in this litigation? And I, I take it we're focusing here on the most recent case filed in Pennsylvania. Yes. Yeah, I think it, it's very much like the cases they've been filing ever since the election, which is to say that it, it, it doesn't have any, any real merit to it. Certainly nothing that would support uh, overturning the outcome of the race in Pennsylvania. They, they're pointing at very, very minor things that don't really justify taking votes off the board. Uh, one of their central complaints uh, throughout this period has been that they were too far away when they were watching the votes being counted. That got changed, but it, you know whether it's right or wrong, it doesn't mean that the people whose votes were counted simply shouldn't be counted. Uh, and there's this one little issue about a few people that sent in absentee ballots that were defective, got noticed to come in and try to fix it. Uh, that doesn't seem like it's going to be a involve very many people or b be a reason not to count those votes either. So what you have here, I think, is a is an effort to create the appearance of some big problem uh, when they don't have it. They don't have the goods. They don't. They haven't actually been able to find anything significant that went wrong in the election, either in Pennsylvania or anywhere else. And, and so we have a, a complete mismatch between the reality uh, and what they're trying to sell to the American people, both rhetorically and through these lawsuits. But the lawsuits aren't going anywhere because judges uh, require facts and law, and they're not giving it to them. It's a wild team. And this is only the beginning, I feel like, too. Professor Paul Smith, Georgetown Law, and the Vice President for Litigation and Strategy at the Campaign Legal Center. Professor, thank you again for joining us. My pleasure. We all know the legal world is complex and high pressure. There's no room for error. 
That's why judges and attorneys across Chicagoland have trusted the expert court reporters at McCorkle Litigation Services since 1948. McCorkle Litigation Services has accurately recorded every word from thousands of legal proceedings. McCorkle Litigation Services provides the legal community with peace of mind, transcribing testimony and depositions that can be used reliably by jurors, judges, and attorneys. For all of your legal support needs, contact McCorkle Litigation Services online at McCorkleLitigation.com. You can like Legal Face Off on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter. And after you listen, if you appreciate what we do, you can rate and review the show wherever you consume your podcast. Joining us now to talk about the Illinois voters rejecting the Fair Tax Amendment, WTTW and Chicago Tonight correspondent Amanda Vinicky with us on the show. What's up, Amanda? Hey there. Nice to be with you guys. And I can see you. That's not as good as being in real life, but I'll take a Zoom over nothing. We'll take it. We'll take it. Old friend of the show, man. We got to cover, of course, the graduated income tax defeat uh, uh, or last week. Um, so back in February, 65% of Illinoisans um, were in favor of the graduated rate income tax by election day, of course, after J.B. Pritzker blew through $58 million of his fortune partially of his fortune, supporting it, um, only 45% voted for it. What happened? Yeah, how does $58 million hurt your cause, right? Well, in this case, in part because he was matched nearly dollar for dollar with other wealthy individuals who were taking the opposite tact. So that's certainly part of it, that what had been just a question with no opposition suddenly became a true way race with two sides. I that's part of it. I also think that Michael Madigan happened and continued corruption happened and COVID happened. And so there's distrust in government is got to be a large part of it. And just fear of the unknown at a time where the public is dealing with so much that isn't known that is a huge portion of this. And getting back to sort of point one in terms of that there was actual opposition, I think that the opposition effectively sort of muddied the waters and raised some questions about what exactly this would do. And the governor would say that the opposition was disingenuous. The opposition, so you're talking again, Ken Griffin and Sam Zell, but also business organizations would say that Governor Pritzker and Democrats were being disingenuous because they weren't telling the whole story. The governor saying this leads to a graduated income tax, a tax on the wealthy, when in fact, that's what it would have done now. The opposition saying what it does is really open up the Constitution and giving legislators a lot more freedom to tax in different ways. And so it, that all all the muddied the waters, and yeah, it lost and failed pretty spectacularly. We thought it was going to be closer. So Amanda Pritzker obviously immediately threatened to make up the deficit elsewhere. So we're going to ask you the million dollar question: Where's the money going to come from? Not just a million dollar question, but at least now the three billion dollar question, and that's because that's how much money the had been expected to raise through raising taxes, particularly and mostly on those who have an annual income of a million dollars or more. And so, oh, how are they going to do it? I don't know. I truly don't think that the governor knows, nor do any of the legislators who are going to be the ones charged with coming up with some sort of budget deal. They don't like any of the options. I'm guessing most taxpayers won't like them either. Residents of Illinois, no matter where you're at on the spectrum, they're not going to love any of the options. Part of those, though, at least in the short-term future, could be Borrowing additionally from a federal program that thus far, by the way, Illinois is the only one that has taken advantage of a federal program that was put in place because the feds recognized that states were going to have struggles due to a lack of revenue coming in from all the uh, pandemic related closures. So that seems like a pretty easy one, one off where we'll borrow some money, have to pay it back, but not at a terrible rate down the line. 
also cuts. Also, yeah, there's going to have to be revenue raised somewhere. Illinois has already kind of done the easy ones in terms of, in even that people don't like. For example, uh, it costs now double to get your license plate sticker renewed. In order to pay for infrastructure spending, they raise the tax on gas. So you're, you're not left with a whole lot of easy options, presumably, in overall raise in the income tax. I also wonder whether Illinois might again revisit the notion of taxing more services. Thus far, the governor has said no outright to taxing retirement income or to further delving into cutting pension benefits. Sorry, I had to move to a less uh, sunny spot. Um, Amanda, (laughs) obviously, Mike Madigan, you can't talk about this story without Mike Madigan. You mentioned him earlier. Uh, Mike Madigan is the longest serving state speaker in American history, uh, heavyweight in all things Illinois politics, obviously. In the wake of this defeat last week, uh, we've seen more high-profile Illinois Democrats come out and either outright call for Madigan to step down um, or, you know, in more polite terms, nudging him aside. We've heard from Tammy Duckworth. We've heard from Dick Durbin. Yesterday on your show, State Rep Bob Morgan was on, who's a friend of our show as well. Uh, We also heard from Mike Quigley. Um, What does 2021 look like for Madigan, especially in the wake of the deferred prosecution agreement uh, involving ComEd paying, um, you know, paying for jobs and uh, payments and contracts to Madigan in exchange for breaks to that company? So we have to point out straight away that Madigan, of course, has not been charged and he says he has done nothing wrong. Nonetheless, there are plenty of those who say even if what conduct he engaged in wasn't illegal or if he didn't know about it, he should have known about it, that it breeds distrust in government at a time where, as we just talked about, there are going to be some really tough decisions that need to be made and It isn't healthy for Illinois government in general, let alone the Democratic Party. Hence, you're seeing these defections. So um, what does 2021 look like? I think right now it looks to me really stressful. I will ask and defer to you guys, the attorneys, to say what does it look like for Madigan potentially legally Because while he has not been charged and, again, maintains complete innocence and says that he's acted in upright fashion, there are certainly those that are aware the federal investigation is ongoing and wonder if it's a matter of if or if it's a matter of when it will reach the speaker himself. And that, of course, could change the dynamic right now, heading closer and closer to 2021, it is The big question is, will Madigan be able to retain his position as speaker for what, by my calculations, would be a 19th term? And so right now, it seems as if you only have eight House Democrats who have come out against him, and he needs 60 votes. We're still waiting on the outcome of several races. You need at least five more House Democrats to oppose Madigan in order for him to lose the speakership. Five doesn't sound like a lot. It is merely a handful, particularly when you have 72 Democrats that you're working with total. But this is Mike Madigan. He clearly has a whole lot of staying power. And already he has very powerful allies that are fighting with him, and not just legislators, but also unions who are long allies of the Democratic Party and particularly of Speaker Madigan that I think are saying, hey, Democrats, don't walk away from this guy. We're counting on you to stick with him. So that's where things stand for now. Man, a really quick last question on legal faceoff. Uh, we're seeing, of course, the Trump uh, election lawsuits. Do you think the uh, hotly contested race between Jim Oberweiss and uh, Lauren Underwood is headed to court? I don't know what today looks like, but I know as of last night, the votes had shifted in favor of Underwood. I it, will tell you this. I at least am don't actually contribute or give to campaigns, but I'm on a whole lot of their fundraising lists that I can try and keep an eye on things. And I have received one from the Oberweiss campaign saying, hey, we need money because we're looking at a potential recount. And certainly when a race is this close, you would not be surprised should either side, whoever it is that ends up on the the losing side of this race, want to take it there. She is Amanda Vidicki, WTTW Chicago Tonight. Keep up the great work. We watch you all the time, and we'll talk to you again soon. 
Well, thanks, guys. It's been fun. and Have a great rest of your podcast. Looking forward to next time. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women's of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com. It is time for the Legal Grab Bag here on Legal Face Up, the way we wrap up every show. Thanks to Ben and Emily and Gabby, per usual, for all their help, and for Rich and Tina and Sam. Thanks for listening. Uh, We've got two guests, per usual. Nina Stillman is a founder and managing attorney at the Stillman Law Group. Hi, Nina. Welcome. Hi. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Glad you're here. And from Heraclides and Gelman. Heraclides, I say. Mark H. Gelman is an attorney for Heraclides and Gelman joining us on the show. Hi, Mark. Hi, Sam. Thanks for having me. Seven topics, Rich and Tina. And I imagine we will begin where we start at the beginning of the show. The lawsuits put forth by President Trump. We got to revisit that topic, Sam. We usually don't revisit topics we covered earlier in the show, but we also don't always have two lawyers in our grab bag. So we have to take advantage of the stellar legal knowledge on the panel today and get everyone's input on what's going on with the lawsuits. Um, You know, we're seeing all sorts of different lawsuits for a bunch of reasons, some that are relatively small, like as Alex mentioned earlier in the show, uh, whether votes should be recounted. Others dealing with how far observers should be. Should it be six feet, 10 feet, whatever. But the bigger issue, the one that really has, I think, some more traction um, constitutionally in in the Supreme Court is the Pennsylvania lawsuit alleging that basically, you know, what the governor did in sending the case to the Supreme Court was unconstitutional, that the legislature should have decided and the legislature did decide to end voting, end of business on uh, November 3rd. Um, and whether, because the Supreme Court decided otherwise, whether that violates the Constitution. Who knows? I mean, that's a pretty novel question. Um, you know, a lot of Biden supporters are still fearful, I think, that because the Supreme Court is now a six to three majority conservative, that they will overturn Pennsylvania. Of course, the question remains of even if Pennsylvania is thrown out, um, does Trump win? Who knows? Tina? Light, light, light away on this very complicated uh, subject. Well, I mean, I think ultimately you've got a lot going on here. There's a lot of drama, a lot of intrigue. I mean, ultimately, I believe that Biden's going to end up um, the unequivocal winner of this election. Um, I, I, I think what we need to do is take a step back here. And whether you're a Trump um, supporter or not, really take a look at to what extent damage is being done um, in the country, especially given that the challenges we had, you know, a, a, a presumed um, president-elect and vice president-elect doing acceptance speeches days ago, they're rolling out what their plan is for um, for when they're in office or, you know, supposed to be in office. And so, yeah, I, I think separate apart from the legal arguments, some of which are novel, some of which I don't think are going to go anywhere. I, I think we have to look at this from this frame of reference of what's happening here as a country and what kind of damage are we doing? Well, it's an interesting point. We talked a little bit earlier with Alex about to what degree public perception um, and the public reaction uh, would affect judges viewing in this case. I mean, Gelman, uh, do you think that should influence the judge? I mean, or the Supreme Court, whether, you know, Biden's already starting his transition and whether people have come to the conclusion that he's president or should the judges just rule in a vacuum, regardless of what the media and what the public are are, are doing and perceiving? I mean, I think I think Biden is doing exactly what he has to do right now. And I think the whole thing is much ado about nothing. 
I mean, you know, if, if, if they disallow these mail-in votes, where does it end? And, you know, everyone knew that it was permissible before the election. Uh, you know, I, I, I can tell you the people here in Florida are very passionate either way. I was at a Florida Georgia party this weekend and people were really upset about the results of the election and they think that it was stolen from Trump. Uh, but on the other hand, I think uh, the majority of people that I have seen uh, really think that we just need to get this behind us. Trump needs to uh, go ahead and accept the reality of what happened in this election. And I don't think that any amount of litigation in Pennsylvania or otherwise is going to change the ultimate result of this election anyway. All it's doing is creating more division that we just don't need. Nina, it's I rather that. Go ahead, I agree Nina. in the in the sense that I don't think it matters from a practical standpoint if Pennsylvania gets thrown out because I think he's won enough. Biden's won enough votes uh, in other states to throw him over the top, and you know it would it might actually I hate to say it help uh, Trump accept the defeat. My light goes off. Sorry, accept the defeat uh, if if. He wins one in in a state, uh, but it also might fuel him to continue the rhetoric. And, and I agree that we are already divided enough. It's enough. And this is not unique to Republicans. You know, Democrats challenged when Trump won. So I think it's part of the process now, uh, you know, going back to 2020 with the vote counting and the recounting and the hanging chads for those who remember all of that. So. I don't think in the end it's going to change anything. I'm more concerned about what Trump's going to do in the next 70 some days and whether or not he will actually leave the White House. Um, you know, I've seen quite a few memes of him with his fingers digging into the <laughs> on there. So so I, I just hope we can have a peaceful transfer no matter what happens in the next 74 days. I mean, what happens if they declare Pennsylvania invalid? Do they vote again? Do their votes just not count? Good question. Well, that's the question, right? I mean, it's it would be ridiculous to to just throw them out, even if there was some issue. Let them vote again, or, or you know, count the votes again. Big deal, in my opinion. So right. Otherwise, it annihilates kind of the democratic process. Then you're saying their votes don't count. Well, they right. do. Yeah, the there's just no practical solution to it. For the Other than Trump conceding. Well, for the sitting president to be sitting there literally saying the word stop counting is just I mean, just think about that for a second, where we are in American history, that the sitting president is saying, you know, thousands of votes should not be counted. It's crazy. And then he found out he was behind and he said, oh, <laughs> keep counting. Keep now, counting. <laughs> right. It doesn't work that way. I don't think he's grasped that concept that the laws don't work for one person. They work for everybody. And that's why they're kind of uniform. <laughs> Let's move to topic number two. Tina, I'm still a little confused. I've read the story on the American Lawyer and Law.com, but there's a former bankruptcy associate and another associate, and there's a restraining order. Help me make sense of this whole thing. So the story is once upon a time, there was a bankruptcy associate. Um, his name is Miles McDonald, who worked at a firm, Cole Shots. Um, he had been practicing for several years and decided that his life in big law wasn't the life of meaning that he wanted to live. Um, and so the upshot is this firm got a temporary restraining order, a two-week TRO against him last week um, after he started threatening to release a bunch of confidential law firm information. He then proceeded to um, post on LinkedIn two confidential documents, one of which was a draft complaint. The other one was a memo on litigation strategy. Um, the LinkedIn account got deactivated on October 30th. He then took to Twitter. The firm sued him um, a few days ago, claiming that he's breaching his duty of loyalty to the firm and misappropriating trade secrets by divulging all of this confidential information. Um, I don't know if you all took a look at what purported to be sort of his, um, I don't know, his diatribe about why he feels like working in big law is not a life of meaning. I mean, I personally have worked in big law for over 26 years and find great fulfillment in my life. You know, it's not for everybody, but it was this very strange um, just diatribe that actually I couldn't even really make sense of. It was English, but it didn't make a lot of sense. And the upshot is the firm has a TRO against him and has filed suit against him. I mean, these are very serious things when we talk about divulging client 
confidential information. And I hope he gets the help he needs because it just doesn't really seem like he's really operating the way he needs to. And he's he's trashed his law career at at minimum. Well, it's a really slippery slope because, you know, this is an an issue that law firms have struggled with for, you know, the last few years as social media um, has become so prevalent because you cannot stifle one's ability or an associate or another employee's ability to exercise their rights of free expression on social media. I think the key here, as the judge, the federal court judge ruled, was that uh, he was divulging confidential information. But I, I, I wouldn't take away from this case the idea that if your associate in a law firm is, you know, saying something you don't like about the law firm, that you can slap a TRO on them. You can't. Um, now, I agree. Again, what, what he, what I he, agree with that. Yeah, what he did differently was divulge confidential information. I think that the law firm, you know, was right in doing that. But, you know, I have, we have lots of law firms are deal with, I know, you know, Gelman's at a fairly big law firm. There are people all the time who are talking on social media and you might not like it as the employer, but there's not a whole lot you can do except for some exceptions. You know, what well, that's what above the law is for, right? I mean, there right. would be no above the law, but for the fact that there's a first amendment. Exactly. Right. You know, above the law, um, what's the one with the door where you can, it's called door Glass something, door. glass door. You can write anything you want about your employer. It's a yes. whole other ball game to divulge work product, uh, confidential information about clients. That That's a big problem. Strategy, because now you've prejudiced a case in where there's a lot of other people involved and this is bankruptcy stuff. I don't, I, I don't, yeah, I don't think this dude has to worry about working for big law ever again. So I don't know if he has to worry about working and, ever yeah, again. Yeah, that's the, that's the other thing. <laughs> I, I think that doing something like that would, would probably cause him to lose his law license. Um, I, he's in Nashville and I have an office in Nashville. So I asked my partners yesterday when I saw the article whether they knew him and and they thought it was the craziest thing they had ever seen, but nobody knew who he was. And Gelman, if you're looking for an enterprising young associate, oh, he, there you go. Hey, this is exactly why a few years ago we started doing personality profiling before we hire anyone in this firm. Psychological so, tests might be required now. He, he would have been weeded out, I think. Yeah, I read the I read the uh, diatribe, and it was there were contradictions in it. It doesn't make sense. He uh, sounds he's, like he's there's something wrong with. Him. He's living in fantasy land. Yeah, and it was the name of the new firm he created is based on some fictional person. Uh, you know, one too more, many participation medals going on here. Speaking of fantasy land, that's a great transition uh, into John Hinckley Jr., who tried to assassinate President Reagan. <laughs> back in 1981, and now he is trying to monetize his artwork, his photos, his paintings, his music. Wild plot twist, Tina. Yeah, I'm the lucky person who drew this straw. So, um, so you know, this is an interesting story. We all remember when um, President Reagan almost got assassinated and was shot many times um, and others as well. And ultimately, John Hinckley ended up in prison, um, he obviously um, has had psychological issues. He was released from a psychiatric hospital back in 2016. Um, the judge in this case is a DC judge who said, you know, he had, because he'd remained mentally stable since then, um, and he's been released from a psychiatric hospital um, and is now living with his mother and I think his brother um, at times. He's got artwork. He's been distributing it since 2018. He claims that he's got frustrations because people don't know it's him. He's doing it anonymously and was required to do that. And so he went to court to get the ability to um, distribute his artwork and his music non-anonymously. He wanted to have his name next to it. And he said it's an artistry thing. It's a freedom of expression thing. Um, he wants to be able to profit from it, but he also wants to communicate to people that he is the source of this artwork. And for that reason, he went to court and the judge said that as long as he abides by certain rules, um, including keeping the folks who are part of his recovery apprised, 
um, and his doctors apprised of what he's doing and what kind of reactions he's getting to his artwork in case they need to counsel him through what could be some significant backlash, I would think, for what's happened, um, that he's able to do it. And so um, it'll be interesting to see if we hear anything more about this story, but um, definitely, you know, someone we haven't heard about very much. Good riddance. F you, John Hinckley. I mean, you know who also is not getting a chance to sell their music? Um, I don't know. James Brady, because you shot James Brady in the brain. Or or Tim McCarthy, who was a Secret Service agent who protected Reagan from the bullet, who went on to become police chief of, of Orland Park here near Chicago. Um, yeah, I mean, just, uh, you know, this story is ridiculous. I mean, I, the, the judge, uh, I think, made a big mistake in allowing this to happen and give more notoriety to, to Hinckley. Um, well, my question is, who's going to buy it? Well, actually, I listened to it on YouTube. It's uh, unlistenable garbage, as you can imagine. But we did try to play it on the show today. But our attorneys, our IP lawyers, Tina, said that we cannot... Because we don't have the license. Hey, I did not advise you on this one. I'm, I'm an interested party, so I'm not able to opine on this. That's true. That's true. But nobody, uh, yeah. nobody would want to hear it, though. I think that right. if, you shoot, if you shoot the president of the United States, that's it. Yeah. You're done. And in fact, not only should he not be able to do that, I think he should still be in a psychiatric hospital for life. Because you know why? Because he shot the president. Yeah. Exactly. Well, we I should ask Jodie Foster what she thinks about all of this, right? She I was thinking about that too. What if he starts trying to sell pictures that he draws of Jodie Foster? It's it's, it's uh, That's creepy. You know, his his punishment should be locked in a cell, listening to the John Hinckley music for the rest of his, <laughs> his life. That that's the worst punishment I could imagine. I think we all agree on this one. So let's keep it moving here. Topic number four involves the Chicago White Sox. It looks like a catastrophic hire right now. New manager Tony La Russa was actually charged with a DUI back from a, an arrest in February. And more and more things are coming out of the woodwork now. Not only was he arrested, not only was he charged with DUI, but the White Sox knew about the DUI and still hired him anyway to lead their, oh, by the way, young baseball team composed with players that are about 21, 22, 23, 24. Not Do exactly they even the know who he is, Sammy? I mean, he's... He's long in the tooth. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. He's only well, 76, it. only 76 years old. You know, yeah, the so, thing I loved about so. the article was the, the police said he was argumentative. Have you met Tony LaRusso? <laughs> That's his job. <laughs> yeah, he, he, he picked up the field sobriety test and tossed it across the uh, across the street and, you know, spit at the uh, spit at the police officer, I guess. But actually, Rich, it's funny you say that because details just came out about 10 minutes ago. ESPN obtained the full arrest report. LaRusso said, quote, do you see my ring? I'm a Hall of Famer. I'm legit. I'm a Hall of Famer. Yeah, it's it's wow. it's amazing. I mean, there's yeah. two elements. Number one, to your point. What are the White Sox thinking the day after this DUI in hiring Tony La Russa? Um, you know, it smacks of an old boys network. It smacks of favoritism, of course. You know, we know that the owner of the White Sox, Jerry Reinsdorf, hired Tony La Russa to be a manager back in the 80s and always uh, regretted firing him. And instead of hiring an up-and-coming young um, manager of color to, to communicate with, you know, Young players, many of whom are Hispanic, especially in the in the era of Colin Kaepernick and and, and all these social awareness that we're seeing, he hires his old buddy, seventy six year old Tony Larusa. Number two, you know this is his second DUI. And by the way, you know it's kind of a funny story. DUIs are serious crimes, right? I mean, people die every single day in this country from drunk drivers, and you know for them to hire him after uh, being stopped a second time in just a matter of years is, is crazy. And, you know, it makes I'll, you wonder. I'll, 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 just, I'll just leave it one more thing. You know, it's amazing that even though we're a huge media market, this is not a bigger story. If this was New York or LA, he'd already be run out of town. Chicago is like surprisingly hands off with the story. Yeah, that's true. I, I, and you have to wonder how much is he really uh, actively drinking? If he's had two DUIs, those are just the two times he got caught. Right. Right. And, and I'm, I'm not a baseball guy, as I told you guys before. I'm from Jacksonville. But you like drinking. We know that but for sure. I, well, I, you, know, <laughs> you know what? Everybody deserves a third chance, right? There Isn't that go. what they say? Ex and, Ex and apparently, apparently, from a historical perspective, from what I read, the guy's a winner, at least when it comes to baseball, and everyone likes a winner. 
like Alabama, for example, and the college football world. Yeah, turning, turning it to, to SEC, of course. But listen, I mean, Tony <laughs> is unquestionably oh, yeah. he's unquestionably one of the most successful managers in MLB history. He managed for like 25 years, but it doesn't change the fact that, you know, with, with two DUIs, you shouldn't be hired, in my opinion, to, to manage. But we'll keep moving. The Bucks guard Sterling Brown has reached a settlement in a civil rights lawsuit against the police. This was a very popular story uh, a few months ago back when uh, we had a lot of social justice issues in the NBA. Well, the issues are still ongoing, obviously, Sam. This is your beat. You cover these stories all the time. And Sterling Brown is you know, relatively a uh, uh, role player, a journeyman for the Bucks. But a couple of years ago, he was stopped outside of a Walgreens in Milwaukee. The video was widely circulated, the body cam video. And, you know, just objectively an egregious abuse of police power. You know, I don't always side with the alleged victims in these cases, but this one, when you watch the video, uh, it's a pretty egregious uh, example of police overreach. He basically was coming out of a Walgreens and, you know, he parked his car over a couple of uh, um, handicap spots. And next thing he knows, he's being tased. The police were, were very aggressive. Uh, way overly aggressive, later disciplined, and, and the police chief uh, admitted that this was a violation of civil rights. He went on to sue the city and, as you mentioned, settle for $750,000 yesterday. Um, so, you know, listen, as a taxpayer in a major city that pays these kind of lawsuits all the time, I think it's really regrettable that we have to pay for officers' malfeasance. And I think we'd all agree that we're that we would hope that given all of the videos that we've seen, all the uh, social activism that this would end, unfortunately, probably probably won't end anytime soon. Tina? Well, I don't think I agree with you. I don't think it's going to end. And that's what's so unfortunate about it. It should end. It should have never happened in the first place, right? But what, what I'm hopeful of is given all the social activism, as you said, Rich, and the awareness that's been created particularly over the last, you know, eight to 12 months and beyond, but especially very acutely since the spring. What I'm hopeful is of is that we're going to see fewer of these because hopefully there will be less of a tolerance for it. I agree. I hope we have some some better training overall. That's a blanket statement for all police departments and and we just need a, we need a wholesale change of the way things have been done in the past because they haven't always been, even with well-intentioned police officers, appropriate actions taken. I thought the unique thing about this particular case was that the city actually admitted that there was a constitutional violation. That is not common in these types of cases that the city, basically, usually they settle so they don't have to admit it, but they did admit it and they settled. Uh, so I think that was pretty impressive. I agree. And that was the right thing to do. It's terrible. Terrible facts, terrible case. I'm glad he got some, you know, some financial recourse for having to go through that. But you're right. I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll see less of this in the future. We've got two more toppers to go here on the legal grab bag on legal face up. This is another baseball story, but um, doesn't involve a DUI per se. Former GM of the Houston Astros has filed a lawsuit against the team for a breach of contract. Now there was the whole sign stealing scandal, and the Astros got in trouble after the World Series, but. Apparently, Rich, behind the scenes, former GM thinks that the team and the commissioner had a cahoots situation, and he's seeking more than $22 million. He's going after the team that let him go. Yes, remember, his title is general manager. Those two words mean inherently, even individually, those two words mean that he was involved in everything. This has been litigated. The Astros cheated. Uh, it was a pervasive conspiracy throughout the organization to cheat. And now for this guy, after he has been thrown out of baseball and fired appropriately by the Astros to file a $22 million lawsuit, I think is nuts. His attorneys say that um, the investigation by MLB into the whole science stealing scheme was deeply flawed. There was no credible evidence that he was in particular um, involved or had knowledge of it. Again, I don't buy it. Um, and, and it's important to remember, as we do discussed frequently on the show when we cover these kind of stories, um, you know, sports teams and sports leagues have a different standard of proof than we have in a court of law. In a court of law, of course, you have all of the, you're afforded all of the 
um, rights that any other litigant has. You have the Constitution, you have uh, you know state laws, etc., federal laws. You don't have that as a litigant in Major League Baseball or in the NFL. You, through your collective bargaining agreement, are subject to the more narrow rights that you and your union have negotiated. So that applies to GMs as well. So, you know, Rob Manfred, in doing the investigation, the commissioner doesn't have to prove uh, beyond a reasonable doubt, uh, as you would in a court of law. So once you sign up for the big leagues, you know, put on your big boy pants and deal with the punishment. Um, every element of this you know, story continues to bug me, especially, Sam, that everyone's got their jobs back, right? Hinch was hired um, in, uh, in Detroit, and the Red Sox just rehired Cora. So it's like, you know, uh, the, the, one of the biggest cheating scandals in MLB history, probably the biggest since the whites, since the uh, Black Sox. And it's like, yeah, you sit out a year, you're back at it. Yeah. Aren't the guys who actually did the videoing, aren't they still employed by the Astros? Probably. Isn't that know. what the article said? I don't know. Said? I, don't I, don't know. know. I, I grew up in a household where the line was the buck stops here. So... I know it was a guaranteed contract and without knowing the specific terms and the specific terms of the union agreement, I I think he should, sorry, my light keeps going off. I think he should just take his marbles and go home. No, you're right, Nina. I'm actually reading the article and Mark, I'll read you the quote here. Quote, the video room employees who conceived and orchestrated the sign stealing system remain employed by the club. You know, they're, well, they were just following orders, right? I wonder if he's thought that litigation through because now, I mean, I know he wants his money. Opening but it up. It's like, yeah, now everything is going to be discoverable, and you would think that it could lead to a lot of embarrassing information, probably for him and the team, which I can't imagine would be good for his career. He's probably oh. banking on settling it, right? I mean, he's oh. going to have more than enough money at the end of the day, and that's why he did it. I mean, I can't purport to know everything, but my guess is that, you know, he's going to get enough money to walk away, and who knows if he's ever going to work to work again. He doesn't need to work again. I'm willing to put money down that he walks away with $10 million and an NDA. Mm-hmm. I'll take that bet. Last topic here on LFO. Tina, I'll just read the headline because I think it's fascinating. Israeli man charged with threatening attorney general, comma, blames autocorrect. It's exactly how you said it, Sammy. This comes from the Tel Aviv Bureau of uh, Legal Faceoffs. Yes. So as many of our listeners know, we've got quite a fan base in Tel Aviv and beyond in Israel. This is us paying homage to our many fans and listeners from Israel. So um, this is a pretty amazing story in, in a number of ways, but we've got a guy, let's just call him Shlomo, who decided that he was going to text message the attorney general Mendelblitz. By the way, you say, let's just call him Shlomo, his na- which, sounds like a, which sounds like a cliche thing to say. His name is Shlomo. What are the odds? <laughs> I just Shlomo love Shlomo. I, I think it's a great name. I love Shlomo. It's interesting. That's what Rich was going to name his first son. Yes. I not the last minute. Yes. There, was, there wasn't enough. Named him Shlomo? There wasn't enough in the name for me. <laughs> Be a there good Jewish are. name. You got to have a lot of. <laughs> what were you, Tina, before you were rudely interrupted? So Shlomo decides he's going to start texting with the AG Mendelblit. Um, specifically with regard to Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu um, and referred to um, Prime Minister as Bibi, which I'm not familiar with this sort of abbreviation or this nickname, but his, he, he referred to him as, as Bibi. The upshot is that instead of saying, do yourself the honor and prove your innocence, autocorrect, or at least what the allegation is by Shlomo is, autocorrect changed it to please commit suicide (laughs) and prove your innocence in court instead of deceiving Israel's citizens who view you as an example of how to behave. So not all that strangely, the AG decided, you know what, this sounds like a threat and maybe we should look into this further. And so the upshot is um, he's been indicted. Shlomo has been indicted. And so, you know, he's like, I'm 70 years old. What kind of harm could I do? Look at me. Do I look like the kind of person who do this? Oi. You know, like, what? Oi, they. 
when you're on, when you are texting with the AG, like I think you should really be proofreading your texts first <laughs> to make well, sure that you're not somehow inadvertently threatening the AG. Maybe you should just not be texting him at all. It, it all like turns on, that. you know, it all turns on uh, his intention to write the word tiktabed, which is do the honor. Uh, and it, 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 it auto corrected that word. I, I know Hebrew. I don't know the word tiktabed, nor has it's kind of interesting to think that the autocorrect was in Hebrew, and uh, that's what the that's what that's what screwed. Right, on. presumably there he was speaking to him in Hebrew, right? Right. I, I know Hebrew, and I actually contemplated taking those English words and translating them and to see if it was tiktabed versus tiktabed or whatever it was, and and I just didn't have time to do it before we got on and. I still kind of highly doubt unless he mistyped the word or didn't know how to spell it, that commit suicide translates to do the honor in autocorrect. Um, It underscores the, you know, idea that as lawyers, you need to be careful what you write and beware of autocorrect, even in Hebrew. Exactly. It's a a clever uh, defense, though. You know, it kind of reminds me of uh, the O.J. Simpson trial when he <laughs> went to put on the bloody the leather glove and it didn't fit. So he could like just take his phone into court and say whatever the heck the word <laughs> is he was supposed to say and see what it does. And I'm if it, guaranteeing if it translates you really is <laughs> something about suicide, then he wins. He, he wins his case. On the other hand, if it doesn't do that, well, he loses. Bye, Shlomo. Well, Tina, it's a good opportunity for us to uh, – Say shalom and uh, uh, shalom, good yontif to all our uh, big fans. We're, we're huge in Haifa. We've got a big following in the West Bank as well. And uh, we'll be taking the show on the road there at some point, Sam, heading over to uh, the Gaza Strip, perhaps. Take it, Elephant. Gaza. Make sure you proofread your text, people. Make sure Absolutely. you proofread. Nina Stillman, Mark Gelman, thank you so much for your time. It's Christina Martini and Rich Linkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question? Just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering sports, Hollywood, and don't forget.